0: Greetings and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today we'll be diving into a beautiful little book, Mozart's Starling by Lyanda Lynn Haupt, as well as some interesting little side adventures as well. Let me tell you, if you find yourself in need of a natural pick-me-up and want to drop yourself down a rabbit hole of genuine wonder and joy, check out her books and web presence. There are a couple of places you can find a healthy dose of inspiration from this lovely author. I'll start by recommending her author site, www.lyandalynhaupt.com. That's her author site. It has information about her books and speaking engagements, and it also links to her blog, which is thetanglednest.com, totally filled with sweetness and goodness. I'm also going to recommend that you check out her Facebook page. Uh, Just go to Facebook and search for Lyanda Lynn Haupt. Uh, That's the first rabbit hole that I fell through while looking for videos of Carmen, the starling, mentioned in her book. As I was scrolling through her Facebook page among the many charming videos and pictures showing us glimpses of her world, I came across the following quote from her that I just have to share. I am grateful for the wonderful solidarity that is manifesting in myriad ways on Facebook during this anxious time in our country. After much reflection, I have chosen not to speak directly about the current administration on my author's page. Here, my central form of resistance will be the offering of refuge through reminders of our innate, unshakable connection with the earth and all creatures in hopes of sparking one of the most central forms of activism, the sharing of our individual creative gifts with each other and the world as voices for change, for resistance, for beauty, for love. Mm. I confess, after reading this, I fangirled out a bit and had to write her a thank you note immediately. It also brings up one point I'd like to include in this podcast. I will do my absolute best to leave politics out and instead share something positive with my audience. Hold me to it, Blue Stocking listeners. Okay, let's get to it, shall we? I ran across Ms. Halp's book one day while killing time in a large chain bookstore while waiting for a new pair of glasses. Yeah. It intrigued me enough that I made a note of it in my phone to pick it up next time I found my way to book people. Those of you in Austin, yes, shop local, y'all. Now, I confess later that week I got an email or notification about books for sale on my Kindle, and I snatched this one up for under $3, but it is the type of book that I will probably pick up a hard copy of and gift to someone in the near, in the near future, so I'm not feeling too guilty at the moment for buying it through Amazon. Also, I just love the fact that I can highlight unfamiliar words and immediately be provided with a definition. Thank you, technology. P.S. You'll be learning some fun new words later. Congrats. Haupt starts with a brief introduction explaining why she chose to write about this subject. Her inspiration, if you will. Of inspiration, she says... And as a writer, of course, I live by inspiration. I watch it come and go. When it's missing, I pray for its reappearance. I light a candle and put it in my window, hoping that this little ritual might help inspiration find its way back to me, like a lover lost in a snowstorm. The word itself is beautiful. Inspire is from the Latin meaning to be breathed upon, to be breathed into. I love that. That quote right there made me want to share this book with as many people as I could. So let's talk a little bit about what this book is about. Once upon a time, Mozart, you know, Wolfgang Amadeus, that crazy composer, was walking down the street in Vienna when he heard a starling singing one of his songs. Naturally, he bought it and brought it home as a pet where it lived with him and his family for the next three years. Haupt, in the hopes of understanding this mystery, why one of the world's most beloved composers would choose to live with one of the world's most reviled birds, decided to experiment with her own household. My own exposure understanding of starlings up to this point was limited to a small part of the storyline of the 1999 film Mansfield Park. Now, before uh, all of the Austin purists get mad at me for loving this movie, which, according to some scathing reviews, is an affront to the novel, can we just take a step back and look at it as a really good period film with an amazing cast? I mean, come on, Lindsay Duncan plays two roles, and I didn't even realize it the first time I watched, because she's so dang good. Also, who really, really loves the novel Mansfield Park? Do yourself a favor and watch this one with a nice cup of tea, or better yet, a glass of wine and some friends. You can turn it into a game and take a drink every time someone looks longingly at another person without speaking their true thoughts. Uh, Okay, I'm done with that soapbox. Except one thing more. Um, another delightful rabbit hole, if you want to check it out, is the Mansfield, Manfields Park blog. Um, that's www.manfields-park.com. You can thank me later. I will also put this in the show notes. Now I'm done. It turns out starlings are pretty much universally reviled by anyone who knows anything about birds and wildlife. There are an estimated 200 million starlings living in the United States, and according to some, they cause about $800 million of agricultural damage each year. $800 million. That's eight zeros behind the eight folks. Sheesh. Uh, This non-native species introduced in the U.S. in the late 19th century has inspired some serious hatred in the decades since. How are we handling this nuisance? wiping them out by the millions, apparently. In 2015, U.S. government agents killed over a million starlings, more than any other nuisance species. Uh, Haupt puts a footnote in her book, For comparison, that same year, the USDA killed 730 cats, 5,321 white-tailed deer, 61,702 coyotes, and 16,500 double-crested cormorants. The silver lining here is that starling populations in the U.S. seem to have peaked for the most part, and in most places are no longer increasing. I'm sure the man who brought the European starling to our shores did not foresee or comprehend the destruction that would follow. I have to quote the author directly here because she has such a lovely way with words, and this was one of my favorite passages in the book. Regarding the presence of starlings in North America, some blame Shakespeare. In the 1800s, acclimatization societies began to form across the country, following successful models in France. It was a vulnerable time for many newcomers to America who were homesick and hungry for the arts, literature, flowers, and birds of their homeland. The aim of the societies was to introduce European species that would be interesting and useful to the seemingly deprived New World species that would offer aesthetic and sentimental inspiration through beauty and song. Eugene Shiflin was a pharmacist who lived in the Bronx. He was an eccentric, an anglophile, and a Shakespeare aficionado. Some say he was also an ecological criminal and a lunatic, but I would argue for a gentler description, perhaps flawed. As deputy of the American Acclimatization Society of New York, Shiflin, it is believed, latched on to the personal goal of bringing every bird mentioned in the works of Shakespeare to Central Park. Armed with his treasured copy of the exquisite Ornithology of Shakespeare, an 1871 volume in which James Edmund Harding assembled every allusion to bird life in the whole of the Shakespeare canon, Shifflin zeroed in on the Bard's single reference to a starling in Henry IV. It is a decisive scene. King Henry commands that the willful soldier Hotspur free his prisoners, but Hotspur replies that he will do nothing of the kind until the king agrees to pay the ransom that will free Hotspur's brother-in-law Mortimer from the enemy. The king flies into a fury and forbids him to mention Mortimer's name. After the king's exit, Hotspur imagines a fanciful retribution, and here enters our star. He said he would not ransom Mortimer, forbade my tongue to speak of Mortimer, but I will find him when he lies asleep, and in his ear i holla, Mortimer! Nay, I'll have a starling shall be taught to speak nothing but Mortimer, and give it to him to keep his anger still in motion. Whew, good old Billy Shakes! His revenge plots range from cooking and serving up a guest's own children in a meat pie to teaching a starling to recite one name over and over. So, long story short, this guy Shifflin had 80 starlings delivered from England, and he released them into Central Park in March of 1890. In just 80 years, those starlings had propagated and spread through the entire continent, just like bunnies. Now, since starlings are so despised, they're not offered any protection like other bird species. Any individual can come along and kill a starling or destroy a nest with no consequences. It is also illegal to keep starlings as pets in many states. If you are curious about caring for an orphaned or injured starling, by the way, I just want to live vicar- or just want to live vicariously after reading the book or listening to this episode, I highly recommend the Starling Talk website, www.starlingtalk.com. Miss Haupt tells a really engaging story of how she came upon her own Starling Carmen. She'd received a tip from a friend who worked for the park service that there was a nest slated to be destroyed, and having kept an eye on that nest for some time, knew there were new hatchlings inside. She and her husband went to the park at night and acted as nonchalantly as possible while trying to take one of the babies from the cleverly placed, hard-to-reach nest. They managed to grab one, Carmen, but her apparently long-suffering husband put his foot down on getting another. Side note here, the way I remember my first impression of this story sounds almost as if he's dragged along unwillingly, but the further I got into the book, and after exploring her blog posts and videos, I can't help but feel that Miss Haupt is the type of person who can get you to do almost anything through sheer force of personality and quiet charm. I know I'm gushing, but you'll see what I mean if you spend even five minutes on her Facebook page. I want to skip ahead here to some of my favorite mentions of Carmen in this book. I'm not going to list everything, though, just in case you decide to pick this up for yourself. There are so many gems within that there's no way I'll ruin it for you, and my favorites are probably different than yours. First, I didn't know before reading this book that starlings could talk. They're part of the Mina family, like parrots, and can mimic incredibly well. Carmen is no different. In their home, they've built her an aviary near the kitchen that faces several family rooms so she can feel connected at all times. She managed to pick things up fairly quickly. If I remember correctly from the book, her first phrase was a sort of whirring noise that helped thought sounded familiar but could not place. It was a while before she was in the kitchen one night, about to pour herself a glass of wine, and heard Carmen expertly mimicking the sound of their electric bottle opener. Other words and phrases followed shortly. It's common for Carmen to greet them with an enthusiastic, Hi Carmen, or Hi Honey, or Come Here, when any of the family members enter the kitchen in the mornings. She also picked up on communicating with the family cat, Delilah. The family discovered this one morning when they walked in, were greeted with Hi Carmen, and then the cat walked in, Carmen looked straight at her and let out her best meow helped get us into some really interesting examinations of language and starling communication in her book that I'm just barely scratching the surface of now. Incidentally, the meow that Carmen has learned and chosen to employ her com- in her communication with the family cat Delilah is apparently not a sweet, docile mew, but more of that loud yelling that lets you know she's hungry. When I read this, I immediately thought of Elvis on the My Favorite Murder podcast, those of you who don't listen, it begins with, Elvis, want a cookie? Okay, I can't. Um, my apologies if your volume just went crazy. I imagine it can get a little stressful at times, too. Haupt wears what she calls a poop shirt since Carmen spends so much time on her shoulders throughout the day. Uh, ew. Um, And one time, they had to attach a note to her daughter's audition tape for a prestigious festival. Please excuse the bird sounds. We have a pet starling. Mozart had one too. Because Carmen's calls of Hi Carmen and Kiss Me can be heard over her daughter's cello music. Whew, that would not be fun. Also, there are myriad ways starlings can injure themselves. Once, Carmen somehow got into the refrigerator and wasn't found for an hour. Haupt tells stories of using reverse psychology to pry dangerous objects like push pins or rubber bands away from Carmen when they're working in her office. Things to keep in mind. Don't leave drinks unattended, double check before microwaving anything, and make sure the lid is down when you flush the toilet. These are all things I learned from the Starling Talk website. All of the worry and stress aside, you can tell that Haupt adores this bird and has forged a really deep bond. She also firmly believes that Mozart's starling held a similar position in his household. There are a few different theories about how Mozart's starling was found by the composer. The story goes that Mozart was walking down the street and heard the starling singing one of his newer songs. We know from his journals that he completed the song on April twelfth, 1784, and that he purchased the bird, We'll, we'll call him Star like Haupt does, although there's no record of his actual name, on May 27th of that same year. It's possible that the refrain star copied from Mozart had originated from the single public performance of the piece at that time. In that time, everybody whistled and would whistle refrains as they went about their daily lives, kind of like we're glued to our phones today. It was common for composers to put bits into their compositions that would be easily memorized and replicated by the whistlers in the audience. That small piece of Mozart's work could have spread through the streets from the original performance in the way that today we use social media to share things with our friends and acquaintances. Or it's possible that Mozart himself taught the bird the song and was so charmed to hear it repeated back to him that he purchased Star and brought him home. Haupt calls them both shameless flirts, and it's fun to think of the composer stopping in the bird stall on his way home most days to play games of music and mimicry with a mischievous starling. Starr lived with the Mozart family for three years and is thought to have inspired Mozart in myriad ways, including a beloved character in his opera, the Magic Flute, and a composition many acknowledge was likely a tribute and heavily inspired by Starr, a musical joke. Incidentally, a musical joke is the only one of Mozart songs that Carmen seems to get really excited about. According to Haupt, the starling much prefers bluegrass and Bach. Life's little jokes, am I right? I'm going to leave it there and encourage you to check out Mozart's Starling if you get the chance. Miss Haupt goes into some really interesting explorations of linguistics and ornithology that I've just barely scratched the surface of here. Not to mention some delightful anecdotes about her bird Carmen and Mozart himself. Now, I also found this amazing article about Beatrix Potter by Cara Giamo. Apologies if I've mispronounced your name on the Atlas Obscura website that I wanted to somehow share, and I'm taking it as a sign that Miss Haupt mentions the author in her acknowledgements at the end of Mozart Starling. The headline reads, Beatrix Potter's greatest work was a secret, coded journal she kept as a teen. I was hooked immediately. Check this out. In November of 1943, Beatrix Potter wrote a letter to her beloved cousin Caroline Clark. Seventy seven years old, laid up in bed with pneumonia and heart disease, Potter was doubtlessly thinking back on her long and varied career, her hundreds of landscape watercolors, her respected mycology research, and her twenty four children's books, some of which, like The Tale of Peter Rabbit and The Tale of Two Bad Mice, were already considered classics. In the letter, though, she didn't mention any of these. Instead, she reminisced about a very different project longer, bolder, and entirely secret. When I was young, I already had the itch to write without having any material to write about, she explained to Clark. I used to write long-winded descriptions, hymns, and records of conversations in a kind of cipher shorthand. Five weeks later, Potter died. As far as we know, this is the only time she ever mentioned what may well be her masterwork, a private journal written in secret code that she kept for over 15 years. In it, she wrote her innermost thoughts about art and literature, science and nature, politics and society, and her own hopes and frustrations. Its eventual publication transformed her reputation from brilliant children's book author to writer for the ages. If it weren't for one tireless, dedicated fan, we might never have seen it at all. Potter began keeping her journal when she was about 14 years old, apparently inspired by a united admiration of Boswell and Peps, as she later wrote to Clark. While those two luminaries were adult men when they started their diaries, Boswell a 22-year-old city playboy and Peps an up-and-coming civil servant, Potter, as a young woman in a Victorian household, was writing from a different life stage and station. Her mother, Helen, herself constrained by social circumstances, wanted a quiet, obedient daughter, one that, when she grew older, would stay home and look after her parents. This was not a role that came naturally to Beatrix, who was adventurous, opinionated, even mischievous, the Peter Rabbit to her mother's Mr. McGregor. The journal was a place where Potter was free. She could escape. She wrote of her efforts to memorize Shakespeare, there is a vast amount in my head, and related interesting facts she had picked up about the rest of the world. Manner of catching ducks in Egypt. Man swims in the water with his head inside a hollow pumpkin and surrounded by decoy ducks and pulls wild ones under. She could participate. Her entries are full of references to political events and transcripts of adult conversations. She could critique. I say fearlessly that the Michelangelo is hideous and badly drawn, she wrote after a visit to the National Gallery. No one will read this. It fulfilled a need not only to express herself, but to have something over which she, who was powerless in every other way, exercised absolute control, writes Linda Lear in her 2008 biography, Beatrix Potter A Life in Nature. She also presents a simpler theory. It seems reasonable to conclude that her code writing was at least initially devised against the possibility that her mother might read it. She may have originally imagined this unwanted audience of one. Decades later, though, after her best-selling books had brought her fame and fortune, she was keenly aware that people besides her mother would now be interested in her private thoughts. Before she died in 1943, she and her husband, the lawyer William Helis, bequeathed their entire 4,000-acre estate to Britain's National Trust, along with her original illustrations. She failed to tell anyone about the diaries, though, or to provide for their translation. They were exasperating and absurd compositions, she wrote in the letter to Clark. I am now unable to read them even with a magnifying glass. So when Stephanie Duke, a younger relation of Potter's, came across what she described as a large bundle of loose sheets and exercise books written in cipher writing in the late author's home in 1952, she wasn't quite sure what to make of them herself. She did know who to ask for help, though. Leslie Linder, the biggest Potter fan around. Linder grew up on a country estate on the outskirts of London, in the type of landscape that inspired much of Potter's work. Like most Potter aficionados, he got his first taste of the author's books at the tender age of seven, when he was given early copies of several of her books, including The Tale of Peter Rabbit. His father, though, gave them away. It took decades before he rediscovered Potter at age 40 and fell in love with her work all over again. Along with his sister Enid, and with the help of his family's vast personal fortune, he began buying up Potter's works at estate sales and auctions. The love of Potty- Potter's work triggered the desire to know more about the lady who created it, says Andrew Wiltshire, an acquaintance of Linder's and the author of a biography of him, Beatrix Potter's secret Code Breaker. The Linder's began collecting other Potter ephemera, not just artworks, but letters, drafts, and other ephemera. When Duke approached Leslie about the sheaf of inscrutable papers, he jumped at the chance to take a look. He was the kind of man who would say, yes, please, Wiltshire says. He wouldn't need to be asked twice. As codes go, Potter's wasn't inordinately complicated. As Wiltshire explains, it was a monoalphabetic substitution cipher code in which each letter of the alphabet was replaced by a symbol, the kind of thing they teach you in Cub Scouts. The real trouble was Potter's own fluency with it. She quickly learned to write the code so fast that each sheet looked, even to Linder's trained eye, like a maze of scribbles. Her handwriting could be minuscule. At times, there were thousands of words squeezed onto a single page it didn't help that when she turned 20, she destroyed much of her earliest and likely clearest work, writing by way of explanation that it is rather appalling to find one was such a goose only three years since. She also prioritized production over organization, in that way that is common among children and artists, of which Potter was, of course, both. She didn't confine herself to notebooks. She wrote all over anything she had at hand, In one case, she repurposed an entire French dictation textbook. She ripped out the pages and pasted in her own coded reviews of museum exhibitions. She even availed herself of a prescient shorthand. Occasionally, numbers were used as as parts of words, such as forget or together, Linder later wrote. It was a tough task. For five years, Linder pulled out his pile of pages, looked over them, and filed them away again with a sigh. By Easter 1958, I was beginning to think somewhat sadly that these code written sheets would remain a mystery forever, he remembered later, later. That Monday, April 7th, he decided to give himself a final crack at them. He pulled a sheet at random from his stack. There, near the bottom of the page, was something decipherable at last. The Roman numerals XVI and the year 1793. To which sixteenth person had something happened in 1793? He fruitlessly flipped through a dictionary of dates. He then turned to a more appropriate ally, a children's encyclopedia, which told him Louis the Sixteenth. French king, born Versailles 1754, guillotined Paris 1793. Here at last was a possible clue, he wrote. Louis XVI's presence helped him puzzle out a nearby word execution. He then knew the symbols for eight letters of the alphabet, including four vowels. He pulled out an earlier sheet, written in a relatively clear hand, and the rest of the day passed in a rush of small revelations. By midnight on that memorable Easter Monday, practically the whole of Beatrix Potter's code alphabet had been solved, he wrote. The real labor, though, had just begun. Working out the shapes of her words using the alphabet took four years, says Wiltshire. Linder was careful to get Potter's thoughts and observations exactly right. If she wrote of a plant she had seen, he checked with a local botanist. When she described journeying to a particular place, he traced the route on a map and occasionally traveled there himself. Any mention of a work of art sent him running to an old exhibition catalog. Had Linder not enjoyed a very particular lifestyle, all other labor optional, a house run by a team of full-time servants, he would have never been able to do it, Wiltshire says. He had the time to just look at the pages and wonder, what on earth does this scribble mean? As he carefully worked through the translation, page by page and year by year, Linder was conscious of his status as the first person to have ever seen the thoughts recorded there. It appears that even her closest friends knew nothing of this code writing, he wrote. She never spoke of it. In this private space, he grew to appreciate his favorite artist as an individual, It was strange how one forgot about Beatrix Potter, the author of the Peter Rabbit books, he wrote, and became conscious of a charming person called Miss Potter. Of course, those two people were one and the same. Potter's diary is full of hints at her future as an artist and writer. "'I can't settle to anything but my painting. I lost my patience over everything else,' she wrote at the end of one particularly agitated page." Plenty of entries close with the name of a book she had recently finished, or contain one of her signature, detailed, occasionally brutal art reviews. Later, she and her brother, Walter Bertram, started designing and selling Christmas cards decorated with illustrations of their pet rabbit, the, that charming rascal Benjamin Bouncer. What an investment that rabbit, ha- rabbit has been in spite of the hutches, she wrote, after a particularly lucrative sale. There are also plenty of excited accounts of the natural world, descriptions of long walks, succinct weather reports, and tales of animals she knew and loved. Beatrix and Walter Bertram were constantly filling their home with wild friends. Besides Benjamin, the journal pays close attention to Prince the Chestnut Horse, a pair of lizards named Toby and Judy, and a green frog, Punch, who has been on extensive journeys. I think she was in many respects the sweetest animal I ever knew, Potter wrote in 1886 after the death of one mouse, whom she referred to as both Miss Mouse and Zarifa. The late pet showed up many times in Potter's sketches, and there is a character called Zarifa in The Fairy Caravan, published a full 43 years after its namesake's death. As she grew older, Potter began to think about sharing her written insights with more people, on August 31st, 1894, she journaled for the first time about searching for mushrooms, a pursuit that would grow to occupy more and more of her time over the next few years, as she grew increasingly interested in mushroom reproduction. Beatrix Potter's journal ended on the 31st January, 1897, when at the age of 30, she was about to submit a paper to the Linnaean Society of London, Linder later wrote. Although she eventually withdrew that particular paper after realizing some of her samples were contaminated, she never returned to her code. After 15 years and thousands of pages written in secret, she was ready to communicate in a way that others could understand. All told, it took Linder 13 years to decode Potter's journals. In 1966, they were published by Frederick Warren Limited as the Journal of Beatrix Potter. Up to that point, critics had mostly considered Potter a writer of bunny rabbit tales and not much else, says Wiltshire. The journal showed that she was much more, an inquisitive spirit with a sense of humor and a great gift for language, and a keen observer of Victorian life. Linder kept collecting and thinking about Potter for the ra- remainder of his life. By the time of his death in 1973, he had filled two room-sized safes in his house with Potter art papers, and ephemera. He left it all to the Victoria and Albert Museum, where it lives on as the Linder bequest archive and collection. The consensus among experts is that, were it not for Linder's work, Potter would be much less well-known today, says Wiltshire. Since 1966, over 100 books have been written about Beatrix, and they've all either drawn on information from the archive, the journal or the other two books about Beatrix that Leslie and Enid wrote in 1955 and 1970. If he hadn't spent all this time, those pages would have remained in a cupboard, forgotten, says Wiltshire. And if she hadn't spent even longer writing it, we would have missed out on a great gift from this writer of bunny rabbit tales. Thousands of pages of very human thought. Ah, it's beautiful. Um, One correction noted on the Atlas Obscura website, this post previously stated that Leslie Linder grew up in Cumbria's Lake District. It was instead a different part of the English countryside. Just want to be sure I acknowledge that. Also, can we just take a moment to acknowledge and be thankful of the fact that this person who was independently wealthy and didn't have to work spent his time in a task that has ultimately benefited so many people, not just himself. I think that's really cool. And if I ever somehow won the lottery, even though I never buy tickets, I would hope that I could put my time to such good use as well. Now, before I let you go, let's learn a fun new word, as promised. Tatterdemalion. As a noun, it is a person in tattered clothing, a shabby person, and as an adjective, it is a ragged, unkempt, or dilapidated thing. The word origin in history for tatterdemalion, meaning a ragged child person dressed in old clothes, comes from around the year 1600, probably from tatter, but perhaps also suggested by tartar with a contemporary sense of vagabond or gypsy. This word was used to describe the bird catchers who caught the starlings and other such birds that would have been seen in shops in Mozart's time. Now, thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or would like to see show notes, you can check those out at www.bluestockingpod.com. You can also reach me via email at bluestockingpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and have a great day.